It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm here today with CPR's Nathaniel Miner. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ryan. Question for you. Question for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have any siblings? I do. A half-brother, half-sister. Has there ever been a time where, like, you are trying to decide where to go for Christmas or uh, vacation? Uh, yes. We have a family reunion every year, uh-huh. and trying to decide on a date for that is excruciating. And everyone wants something different. Uh-huh. So what are you doing about it? Uh, besides rue their names uh-huh. behind their backs? Um, well, gosh, we just go back and forth and back and forth over email until we find a date which has like the least conflicts and soccer games and horseback riding lessons and things like that. Right. So a compromise is kind of what you're describing. A compromise. Yes. So compromise is actually what we're going to talk about today. Oh, okay. Uh, It's something we all have to do every day. And the story I'm going to tell you is about a deal some environmental groups made with Denver water over a river. Okay. Uh, It's weird because usually environmental groups in Denver water fight over water. Uh, But in this case, most of the conflict is actually among environmentalists. So they're like my siblings and me. Why would environmentalists be arguing amongst themselves? Because, well, environmentalists more or less agree on their ultimate goal. They all want to protect and restore the environment. Uh, The strategies they use are all very different. And the big question that divides them is when do we compromise? When to compromise? So, Nate, you were in Grand County earlier this fall where the issue of compromise is really playing out. Yeah. Uh, Grand County is a kind of stupidly beautiful part of the state. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's just on the other side of the Continental Divide. And at the heart of the county is the Fraser River. It tumbles down the mountains near Winter Park and flattens out and meanders through the county. Uh, it eventually dumps into the Colorado River up by the town of Granby. And I was up there a few months ago with Kevin Scannell. Uh, he's a fishing guide at Devil's Thumb Ranch near Tabernash. And this guy is really, really into bugs. A lot of our hatches have already happened this year. But we'll still see these little guys living in here if we turn over a couple rocks and look around for a little bit. So bugs are super important to a healthy river, and so is temperature. But the Fraser River is not doing great here. Why? Uh, Because there's not enough water in it. Uh, The river is relatively wide here, but the water is so low that it's not very deep. So the water gets warm and fish can't survive. Um, You'll see fish picking up um, fungus on the side of their body. You'll just see them rolling over dead on the bank sometimes. Where did the water go? So most of the water is pulled out of the river before it actually gets to that spot. And to where? Uh, Probably to you and me. Uh, Denver water pulls out about 60% of the water and pipes it through the Continental Divide to Gross Reservoir up by Boulder. And now they want to pull even more water out. Why? Because we're thirsty. People keep moving to the front range. Denver Water wants to beef up its resources. Now, their conservation efforts have been a big success. Per capita water use is down in recent years. But the agency says it still needs more capacity. These diversion plans usually cause huge fights between water managers who want the water and environmentalists who want to protect the rivers. And the bugs and the fish. Uh, But this case feels different. Yeah. uh, For the first time that anyone can remember, big environmental groups like Trout Unlimited and American Rivers are supporting a Denver water diversion plan. Denver water wants to take about half of the remaining flows out of the Fraser. Why would environmental groups support diversion? Yeah. Uh, It appears that Denver Water has gotten much better at reaching out to environmental groups and people who live near where they're taking this water. They've always paid for work to offset some of the harm their projects do to the environment, but it was kind of just something they had to do to get their permits. 
But now they're part of this group called Learning by Doing. Learning by Doing. Who's in the group? It's Grand County officials, water managers, and environmentalists who all work together on a monthly basis. And these are normally people who are at odds with each other. Yeah, exactly. But now they're working together. And here's the key part. Uh, Denver Water has to be part of this group to get the permits they need to pull more water out of the Fraser. Okay. Any other, I don't know, motivations for Denver Water here? So one thing I heard a lot is that their customers are getting savvy about where the water's coming from. I mean, think about it. People move to the Front Range, uh, and they like to kayak and fish on western slope rivers like the Fraser. Uh, so they're putting pressure on Denver Water to take care of them. Huh. And one Denver Water scientist, Kevin Yuri, uh, told me that that message is getting through. You know, we all uh, need the water resources for the development and growth in the Front Range. But at the same time, we all, you know, choose to recreate up in Grand County and Summit County and other areas. And, and uh, this is our playground, too. Yuri's worked at Denver Water for nearly 30 years. And he told me new leadership puts a big emphasis on protecting the environment. So I asked him kind of an unfair question to test that theory. What would be best for the river uh, if circumstances were different, in your scientific opinion? the uh, Clearly, the system would be better if we weren't using the water resources for other uses, but uh, that's not the scenario that we're dealing with. I mean, we have a need for the water supply. So that's Denver Water admitting that their diversions hurt the Fraser River. Yeah, you could drive a truck through that pause there. Yeah. Obviously, they're not going to stop their plan to pull out more water because, like you said, the Front Range needs it. Denver Water says it provides water to 25% of the state's population, and they only use about 2% of all the water resources in the state. So he's reflecting the reality versus the ideal situation, but environmentalists still don't want more water taken out of the Fraser. No. At a very basic level, all the conservationists I talked with want more water in the rivers. But I was surprised by how much they disagreed on what to do about Denver Water's plan. So, for the rest of this story, I'm going to introduce you to three different conservationists, and hopefully you'll get an idea about how they approached that question, when to compromise. Well, who are we going to meet first? Let's start with Trout Unlimited. Uh, They were initially opposed to Denver Water's plan, but now they support it. Uh, They're a part of the Learning by Doing group up in Grand County. And it's quite a thing for Trout Unlimited to support a diversion plan, especially when you meet their guy in Grand County. Uh, Kirk Clanky has lived up there for 45 years, and he loves a few things. The Fraser River and talking about the Fraser River. Well, to me personally, I can't talk about it without getting all emotional. My life's been spent on this river. He's watched the river dwindle and get warmer as more water's pulled out of it. And that's changed how his family has used it. Uh, When I was young, I threw my children in the river um, during picnics, and they were in their bathing suits. It was cool. Um, They'd be in a pool for about a minute, and they'd come out. Their lips would be purple. They'd be squealing. Now I throw my grandchildren in the river, and they're not in a hurry to get out. We spend up to an hour in a pool in the river. So it sounds like summer fun. You know, warm water is more fun to play in. But warm water also means that the river's getting sicker. Uh, and for years, Clanky blamed that on the front range. I guess I was a little radical because I urinated in diversion ditches. That's <laughs> about all I knew to do. Um, I've matured quite a bit since then. Wait, did he just say that he used to pee in our water to get back at the populated areas of the state? Yeah, he 
did say that. Uh, he's quite the character. But as he says, he grew up. Uh, the real turning point was when he got involved with Trout Unlimited. I loved their approach. They were able to look at it in someone else's shoes, which is what all mature people do, and then move forward with opening up a conversation. Trout Unlimited negotiated with Denver Water to get the city utility to help pay for some work on the Fraser to make it healthier. One big project will dig a channel in the river. You see, when flows are low, like they were in the fall, the river is really shallow as it stretches across its native bed. So the new channel will allow the river to recede and stay deeper. What does that help with? So depth is important. It helps the water stay cooler. So this will be a series of riffles and pools. Every time they create a riffle, they raise the level of the stream up above that riffle, and that creates a deeper area for holding water for fish for cooler temperatures. So the Learning by Doing group is essentially going to turn the river into a creek. And I'd understand if you think that sounds kind of depressing. Uh, It was once this mighty river. I mean, President Eisenhower fished it a lot back in the 50s. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, But Clanky doesn't really look at the project as a loss. Uh, He says that during peak flows in the spring, the river will be nearly as wild as it is now. And he says Denver Water has to stay involved in the Learning by Doing group. If environmental issues come up down the road, Clanky says Denver Water will be there to help solve them. And if Denver Water leaves the group, they could have permits for their whole project revoked. And that would stop the project. Yeah, exactly. So Trout Unlimited has a little bit of leverage there. Clanky prides himself as being a realist. The front range is still growing, and water managers there own water rights that they'll use with or without his blessing. Right now, politically, I don't think you can stop them from taking the water. You can only beg them that when they exercise their water rights, that they'll do it in an environmentally friendly way and work with us on what environmentally friendly means. So that's what Kirk Clanky and Trout Unlimited are doing. To recap, they support diverting more water out of the Fraser and sending it over to the Front Range. In exchange, Denver Water will help restore a section of the river and stay involved in conversations up there. It's certainly a compromise. There's that word, compromise? Yeah, but they hope it's the start of a better relationship between themselves and Denver Water. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, it seems like a practical way of taking on the issue of a thirsty Front Range and dwindling rivers in the West. Yeah, that was my initial thought, too. But I got a feeling when I was reporting in Grand County that there was another side to the story. And I want to hear that. We have to take a short break, though, Nate Miner. So we are going to be back with the rest of this story about compromise and whether to divert more water from the Fraser River in western Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathaniel Miner. Hi, Nate. Nate is a CPR reporter, and he's joining us to share a story about water. And compromise. Yes, compromise. Because when different people look at the Fraser River, west of the Continental Divide, they see different things. People fish in boat there. Other people bathe and cook with its water at home. And right now, Denver Water wants to bring more of it to the Front Range for that purpose. Before the break, Nate, you were telling me about... Environmental groups that are formally supporting this plan, that's unusual for the big city utility and environmentalists to work together. Yeah. A group called Trout Unlimited is one of those uh, working with Denver Water to make it happen while protecting the habitat as best they can. But I want to introduce you now to someone who's not happy with the Fraser River Diversion Plan. Okay. That person is Jen Pels with Wild Earth Guardians. She's their Wild River Program Director, and she really likes rivers. She grew up near a tributary to the Rio Grande in New Mexico. It was kind of the place that I could go, just be myself, be alone, uh, be with nature. And so I developed a really 
strong connection to the river there. She spent some time as a water lawyer in Denver. She even represented clients like the city of Pueblo that used water from rivers on the western slope. But eventually, she felt a pull toward environmental advocacy. Why? This is really sweet because she wants the rivers she grew up playing in to be there for her kids when they grow up. Representing the environment makes me feel like I'm giving a voice to someone who doesn't have a voice. The rivers don't have a voice. The critters that live in those rivers don't have voices. She started with Wild Earth Guardians about three years ago. They're known for their lawsuits. That's right. They've sued the federal government over haze in western Colorado. Uh, leases to coal mines, and their tactics seem to work. Yeah, that Hayes lawsuit ended in an agreement where a coal mine and a coal-fired power plant south of Grand Junction will shut down in the next six years. Another power plant in northwestern Colorado will shut down one of its units, too. But Pels's work is focused on rivers. She wanted to work at Guardians because, like she says, the environment comes first. Everything else is secondary. We're willing to go out on a limb. We're willing to not be liked by the general public or by um, particular industries. And I think that it takes that kind of moral integrity and just knowing where you stand on the issues to really push the envelope. So it shouldn't be a surprise to you that Wild Earth Guardians does not like Denver Water's plan to pull more water out of the Fraser River. She's not interested in compromise. Pell says the negotiation started at the wrong place. We've already done so much harm that if we don't go back and say, okay, we need to decide what our rivers really need and start there and then work from there to go forward and say, is is this project really justifiable? Probably not, because you've already taken 60 percent of the water out of the river. She's right about that last figure, by the way. Her point, though, is that if the Fraser River is going to be saved, it'll happen by letting more water back into the river, not by taking more out. And she says the river will need it as our climate gets warmer. But people and their lawns are still thirsty. Yeah. And on top of that, the Colorado Constitution has historically protected the right to divert water. It sounds like Wild Earth Guardians has an uphill battle if they want to stop this diversion project on the Fraser River, given how many interested parties have agreed to it. Uh-huh. Uh, Pell says they and another group called Save the Colorado are considering litigation once final permits are approved. And that could happen in 2018. But that approach can't, you know, win them a lot of friends. No. Uh, Pell says she's been ostracized from her former clique of water lawyers. It's hard for her to get meetings with state regulators. Even their relationship with the greater environmental community is strained. How is that? She's upset with Trout Unlimited for the compromise they made on the Fraser River. She says Denver Water is more willing to meet with environmentalists now because they've softened. And she's upset with what Trout Unlimited has become in the eyes of state regulators. Trout Unlimited has been deemed by Denver Water and all of the the state of Colorado as being the environmental voice. And they get invited to the table because they play this role in communities, which I don't think is a bad thing. But they don't necessarily represent all of the different interests in the environmental community. So she feels like Wild Earth Guardians is being left out of these conversations. It's the state's fault. It's Trout Unlimited. They don't talk to us. They don't ask us what we think. Um, And I've called them and I've had meetings with them. I've asked them what they think and they've told me they don't like our approach. And I understand that. But I think that it works both ways. Pell says it can be hard to be out towing the left line, as she put it. (laughs) Everybody likes to be liked, she told me. But she's decided that over the long run, her methods are what will make a difference. To do anything else would be surrender. Once Save the Colorado and Wild Earth Guardians gives up that fight and says, "Okay." Let's just, it's okay. We, you know, we've just, it's, we've come too far. It's already, the damage is already done. We can't do it anymore. I think that just means I'll walk up to the Colorado River someday to the headwaters and there won't be water there. And that's 
I don't want that on my conscience. And I don't want to have to explain to my kids that I gave up the fight for this river that is the namesake of our state, the state they were born in, because I was just willing to compromise. Yeah, we may not win, but damn, we're going to try. So this is somebody who's not giving up. No, she really planted that flag in the ground. Compromise is really not in her vocabulary. So two very different approaches from environmental groups, one working with Denver Water, getting a seat at the table, but also compromising on what they'd see as an ideal outcome for the river. Another group taking a much harder line, being purists on what's best for that river's health. I was really surprised to see the level of disagreement within a community that ultimately wants the same things. So I talked with a third environmentalist, Matt Rice, to help me figure this out. How'd he help? He described how different environmental groups work together, even when they aren't necessarily working together. (laughs) Okay, give me an example of that. So Matt Rice is with American Rivers, and he says that when Jen Pelz's group, Wild Earth Guardians, files a lawsuit and makes a bunch of people mad, they push the whole conversation to the left. And so even though they don't ultimately get a seat at the table, they make room for another group to step in and talk with state regulators or with business interests. But there's a downside that he told me about. People don't forget lawsuits and aggressive press releases, and they can lump environmentalists together. Trout Unlimited is no different than us, and, you know, so on and so forth. And I think that has the potential to kind of undermine the progress we're making on the center-right side because of, you know, I think very real good advocacy on the left. Rice says they support the Fraser River Diversion Plan for the same reasons Trout Unlimited does. But he hopes it and another major project in the works called Windy Gap near Granby are the last Trans Mountain diversion projects. There just isn't enough water on the western slope, he says. And if another diversion plank comes up, Rice says they'll fight it with everything they have. So to recap, Denver Water wants to take more water out of the Fraser River, keep up with demand on the Front Range. And we heard from three environmental groups on how they approach this project through the lens of compromise or not. Uh, I'm curious, Nate, what's your takeaway from all this? The decision on when to compromise is really at the heart of what makes conservation groups different from one another. The different groups really form a whole ecosystem. The lesson I learned is that all the different players posture and position themselves off one another. From Denver Water's perspective, they're much more willing to work with groups open to compromise like a Trout Unlimited. And all these dynamics can really strain relationships. But on the other hand, like Matt Rice says, they can also open some doors. So what is next for the Fraser River? The stream narrowing project, which would make a mile-long stretch healthier, albeit smaller, is scheduled to start next spring. Denver Water expects to have all of its permits for their diversion by 2018, and construction could begin in 2019 or 2020. Or there could be a lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll hold on and stay tuned for that. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Ryan. Nathaniel Miner is on CPR's digital team. Now, Grace Hood, our environment reporter, recently reported on plans to expand a gross reservoir near Boulder, which would store Fraser River water. You can hear her story at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Election results in Colorado will be certified Friday, and soon after, the Electoral College does its duty... So we thought we'd dive deeper into the election results to see what 2016 tells us about voting patterns in Colorado. There were some surprises here. Norman Provisor is with me, political scientist and professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Welcome to the program. My pleasure, Ryan. First off, what assumptions or theories did you just have to throw out as a political scientist after this election? Well, I think 
before we just a little preface to that. Yeah, sure. Because one of the things, uh, two colleagues of mine and myself uh, in the department at uh, Metro uh, wrote a chapter for a book that was published right before the election okay. called Presidential Swing States. And we wrote the chapter about Colorado. And the basic assumption of that chapter was that Colorado was going to stay pretty much the way it had been in recent elections. You know, that it was, you know, there are always variables that change, but it was going to say pretty much the way it was. And in reality, there was much in the vote that reinforced that view. We were pretty much, if you think about it, Clinton won Colorado just about by the same margin that Obama won in the 2012 election. He won by more in 2008. So there was there were some things that we were expected. At the same time, there were things like five counties in Colorado flipped. They went from Obama to Trump. And that is a major flip. And uh, they vary in terms of what those counties were and what the reasons were. So I think that was one of the surprises. Mm. I, I don't think people were expecting a place like Pueblo County to go, that's always been Democratic, to go on the Republican side, although it was a very close vote. Right, narrowly for Trump. So the other counties that flipped include Chafee, Conejos, Huerfano, and Los Animas. That's correct. And one of the, you talk about surprises, things you kind of have to sit back and say, hmm, I wasn't expecting that. In terms of those, those counties, uh, in general, the counties have a very large Hispanic population, uh, including uh, Conejos, which is majority Hispanic in terms of one population, one of two counties in Colorado in that category. So I think people were expecting where you had a fairly large concentration of Hispanic voters, that that would be good territory for Clinton, especially the ones that have tended to vote Democratic. So if there was, to me, a surprise in the election, uh, that was it. And in terms of some of the places like uh, Los Animos, um, while Trump won the county. Bennett won pretty handily, 50% of the vote in that county as well. So here, the the Democratic Democratic incumbent. That's right, Democratic incumbent for senator. So it wasn't like a complete turnaround. And it went from blue to red in one fell swoop. It wasn't anything like that. There were a variety of variables at work. Pueblo, for example, had been Colorado's steel city. And we know what's happened with there. And that was one of Trump's campaign things, bringing back manufacturing, our steel industry, all of those things. Your point about Bennett's win in those counties is that people split the ticket. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, we, you know, we, we, we've done that before uh, in terms of the state. And that just is a clear reflection that personalities – as well as stated policies, had much to do with the results of this election. So zooming out a bit, Hillary Clinton won by nearly 5% in the states, but a Republican in a competitive congressional district held on to his seat, speaking there, of course, of Kaufman, and the GOP kept control of the state Senate. Absolutely. So, yeah, what... How would you describe Colorado politically after this last election? Well, I think, again, I think most descriptions will keep referring to Colorado as a purple swing state. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the change. It, it hasn't been – we haven't really moved back. When I first moved to Colorado a number of years ago, this was very much a red state in many, many ways. Uh, it, some people thought it was going to stay that way. Then all of a sudden, Democrats started winning and everyone said, ah, it's becoming a blue state. But in fact, we're pretty mixed – 
in, in, in our views. And that's one of the key things, I think, about that, uh, about the state itself. So in, in the thing about the congressional districts, you make a great point. It's interesting because this was a major change election. You could argue that the reason Trump emerged from the shadows to win was he was able to tap into the change theme much better than Hillary Clinton was. Change election. But think of this. The Congress that was returned is almost exactly the same as the Congress that was in power before we wanted to change. So we had a change election at the presidential election and a non change election at the congressional election. And Colorado just reflected, we were like the rest of the country. We essentially returned all our incumbents. These are not my words. They're Trump's, but it, it raises the question of what it means to drain a swamp, I suppose. Yeah, well, swamps are strange places. And you were talking about water previously. Um, so I, I don't want to get into the environmental aspects of okay. that. But uh, when you look at, say, county by county, uh, it looks pretty red in favor of Trump. Was Hillary Clinton's overall win in this state just as simple as turnout along the front range? Well, I think it's basically based on the this, the way the population of Colorado is distributed and the change in that population. So if you think of it, when you look at the map, 44 of the 64 counties, uh, for, excuse me, 42 of the 64 counties 42, okay. voted for Trump. 22 voted for Clinton. That, you know, almost two to one kind of situation. So you look at the map and it reflects that. But where the population is, that's where Clinton did very well. So just think of this. You have as many voters in Denver city and county as you have in probably more than two-thirds of the smaller counties, all combined, aggregated. One county equals that. And Clinton won um, Denver by 130,000 votes. Now, it takes a lot of votes in counties that have 12,000 voters to make up 130,000 votes. So that's that's the big change. We're becoming increasingly an urban area, and urban areas tend, not completely, tend to vote Democratic. And there are the obvious tensions between urban and rural parts of this state. Norman, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Norman Provisor is a political scientist at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Now, Colorado's Nine electors cast their votes for president December 19th. There's dissent in the ranks, and next week we'll speak with some of those electors. Up next, treason in the Rockies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. During World War II, hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war, German, Italian, and Japanese, were held in the United States. That's right. POW camps were in Americans' backyards. One of them at Camp Hale near Leadville was the site of an escape plot. A U.S. soldier, who was also a Nazi sympathizer, broke out two German POWs, and they nearly made it across the Mexican border. Paul Herbert writes about this strange history in his new book, Treason in the Rockies. He's on the phone with us. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. Surely. Before we talk about this Nazi sympathizer named Dale Maple, I want to shed a little light on these POW camps in the U.S. Why would the country bring prisoners across oceans, presumably, instead of leaving them with, I don't know, allies abroad? Primarily to help out Europe. uh, Europe was overwhelmed with the number of prisoners, so 
uh, as the war moved on, we, we brought them over to uh, to help them out. Okay, shipped them over in, in ships or in planes yeah, or shipped what? shipped them over, and, and then, uh, then they uh, put them on trains and sent them to 46 of the 48 states uh, throughout the United States. How did uh, Americans feel about this? It was very controversial, um, very controversial, especially early on because of the, the fears and, and all the unknowns, but... It didn't take long before Americans and businesses were actually very much in favor of it uh, because it, it, it brought jobs to the communities wherever a camp was established. Uh, buildings had to be built and roads had to be made and uh, people had to be brought in to, to run the job. So it was an economic boom for, for most of the camps. So you write that there were 400,000-some-odd German, Italian, and Japanese POWs in captivity in the U.S., and in Colorado, it wasn't just Camp Hale. There was Camp Carson near Colorado Springs, Camp Greeley. Others were in very rural areas. What do you know about life for the POWs in these camps? Uh, well, the, the camps were spread out all through, throughout the U.S. Originally, they were, uh, there weren't that many, and, but for the labor shortage, for, for the local farmers and industries to hire uh, these POWs and put them to work, they spread out uh, a lot of uh, what were called side camps. Um, life for the the prisoners themselves was was pretty good. Early on, they didn't do much. They just sat around the camps and engaged in their hobbies and gardening and whatnot. But but it didn't take long for the uh, the U.S. because of the labor shortage to realize that that this is a ready-made labor uh, market. And uh, so a, a deal was struck with the army to hire these prisoners out. In um, all throughout the United States, in, in virtually every every type of job you can imagine, except for anything to deal with the war industry. So they were paid. The United States paid POWs to do work. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they they paid uh, the POWs were paid about eighty cents an hour. P, uh, officers were paid a little bit more, and um, the um, um, the the United States government. Um, uh, ended up, uh, and, and when the prisoners got this pay, they were allowed to keep it in a savings account during the war. Um, and at the end of the war, they were the U.S. paid out two hundred seventy-four million dollars uh, in accumulated uh, collections for these uh, these uh, payments that the prisoners had done. Fascinating paychecks for POWs. Okay, to this Nazi th- sympathizer who helped two German POWs escape their Colorado camp. Dale Maple is a fascinating figure. You write that he spoke 20 languages fluently, and you call him in particular a Germanomaniac. Uh, what do you mean? Well, he, he, uh, he was a child prodigy uh, in his hometown of San Diego. At a very young age, he was playing concert halls. At, at age 15, he performed at the, um, uh, the San Diego World's Fair, um, and uh, and then he, he attended Harvard. Uh, he got into Harvard as a 17-year-old and uh, graduated uh, from Harvard University with honors. Um, and although he didn't have any German blood or heritage in his family, uh, at least none that's known about, um, he, over the years, through his love of, of music, he developed a, uh, an admiration and love of all things German, uh, primarily because uh, initially because of the German composers. Hmm. And this led him to uh, sympathize with Nazis eventually, I guess. Right, right. That 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 uh, it got him into the whole um, 
uh, German culture and the, and the Nazi culture. And and when when he was a student at Harvard, he got himself into quite a bit of publicity. In, in fact, uh, in 1940, October of 1940, uh, while he was a student at Harvard, Time magazine actually did a story about him uh, because he was creating such a stir. Uh, and I actually found the, the old issue on eBay, so I, <laughs> I know for a fact it's there. Um, and he was... He was uh, uh, he, he, that was in October 40, he graduated from Harvard in 41. And he joins the army eventually, his Nazi leanings are known, so they assign him to a, quote, special organization, the 620th Engineer General Service Company, which ends up at Camp Hale in Colorado's mountains. What made this organization special? Uh, right, well, right, right after graduating from Harvard, he, um, he joined the U.S. Army, and uh, and right away he realized his reputation, uh, which was nationally known, caused him a lot of problems, and and he ended up getting uh, laid off uh, abruptly from a couple jobs, and um, and uh, early on in the army, the the uh, guys guys like Maple who were um, disloyal or considered disloyal were assigned just to the general army ranks. Uh, within a year or two, though. The army realized that uh, it would, might be a good idea to get all these guys. There were roughly uh, 1,200 to 1,500 of them. Um, get them together in one camp, huh. so the army could keep an eye on them. Um, and originally, that that camp was in South Dakota, uh, but by uh, by early of 1944, that that camp had, had been uh, sent out to Camp Hale. But but by the way, that that's not to say by any means that that all the soldiers at Camp Hale were in this group. This was one small group exactly, exactly. Of, of, the, of all the soldiers at Camp Hale. And Camp Hale is actually probably best known as the training center for the skiing soldiers of the 10th Mountain Division. Right. Again, a totally right. different division. Um, there's a campaign, I'll say, going on right now to make Camp Hale the country's first national historic landscape. So Dale Maple is stationed there. How does he, as an American soldier, make meaningful contact with German prisoners? Being well, he, he he stationed there with a couple other um, uh, American soldiers who were considered uh, disloyal, and uh, uh, surprisingly, the the army had placed one of these um, prisoner of war camps, uh, and there were roughly 660 of them throughout the United States. Had placed one of them right next to the uh, the U.S. Army base uh, with it with the Camp Hale soldiers. So uh, Dale Maple could walk a hundred yards away um, uh, and talk huh. freely to these uh, uh, prisoners of war. Maybe not the wisest death. idea to place the disloyal American soldiers, or those at least suspected of being disloyal, right next to the German POWs. It, it, it really is amazing, and there, there, were, there was a lot of uh, com- comment at the time about how that wasn't a good idea. In uh-huh. fact, on one uh, weekend away from camp. When when Maple Maple had a, a weekend leave, he actually snuck into the prisoner war camp next door, put on a prisoner war uniform, and spent the weekend among the the prisoners of war. Huh. And then then came back three days later to his uh, to his army camp a hundred yards away. My guest is Paul Herbert. His new book is called Treason in the Rockies: Nazi Sympathizer Dale Maple's POW Escape Plot. And to tell us more about this plot, he helped smuggle out two German soldiers. I think the original plan was bigger, though. Yeah, the original plan was uh, was four or five soldiers, and 
there were going to be two uh, two of these U.S. Army soldiers that were going to be involved. Um, but for a number of reasons, it ended up just being Maple. He he uh, the the sold the disloyal soldiers in this in this camp hail or the soldiers considered disloyal in within this camp hail. Um, they didn't have a lot of the privileges that most uh, most army soldiers had. For example, they were not issued weapons, and, and they were not allowed to own a car. Huh. Uh, but Maple went out and bought an old car, a, a, 19, uh, a 1934 Rio, um, and, uh, and snuck out with two of these uh, prisoners of war and made a mad dash to Mexico. Huh. Um, and it, someday someone's going to make a movie about it. I, I, I suspect it's it's almost like a like a Dumb and Dumber type thing. You got those three guys, <laughs> you know, certainly knowing the laws behind them. Um, and uh, along the way, they have uh, two flat tires. The second fl- uh, flat they 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 cannot get fixed, so they they they're driving on the rim. Uh, this is uh, you know on the way to Mexico before they get caught, and uh, they drive into a ditch at one point. And an off-duty U.S. Customs official sees them, and not knowing who they are or what it's about, because you know it hadn't come over the radio yet, uh, this this off-duty customs official actually pushes Maple's Rio out of the ditch with his car, um, and uh, and and then about ten miles from the Mexican border, uh, Maple and the two uh, prisoners of war run out of gas, and, and uh, they they are apprehended. Uh, Maple at first, I think, pretends not to speak English. He he speaks, or or when he does, he does so with a, a kind of fake German accent. He right, he's eventually right. sentenced to death, but was not executed, right? Right, right. When when he, when uh, when they ran out of gas ten miles from the Mexican border, they 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 walked into Mexico. They walked the ten miles and then walked a couple miles more. Got picked up by a Mexican customs official who turned them over to the U.S. and um, Maple got court-martialed. Um, and they, they were going to execute him. They were going to hang him. Uh, and FDR uh, knocked that down to uh, life in prison. And then um, I believe Truman was uh, knocked it down to 10 years in prison. Huh. And uh, Maple ended up spending about six years at Leavenworth and got released in 1950, spent out the rest of his life in uh, obscurity in San Diego. Fascinating story of Dale Maple, written by Paul Herbert. His new book is called Treason in the Rockies. Nazi sympathizer Dale Maple's POW escape plot. If you or your family had contact with POWs held in Colorado, we'd love to hear about it. Email us news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org. Health giant Kaiser Permanente is investing heavily in renewables and other sustainability projects like energy efficiency and water-wise landscape. Many Colorado-based companies are following suit, but as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, there are questions about whether the trend will continue. Adam Carew stands in a parking lot outside his office with a cable in his hand. He plugs it in... And his electric car starts to charge. Obviously, by me driving this car, I'm a big proponent of renewable energy. This charging station is unusual because it's in the parking lot of Kaiser Permanente's Lone Tree Medical Offices. Carew is a family physician here. As a KP employee, he can plug his car in for free anytime. I think it's great that Kaiser's investing in that because I think it's, it's clearly the future. Kaiser's leaders agree. The nonprofit health system, which operates in eight regions and 11 states, has made it a priority to go green. 
Roland Lyon is regional president of the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan. He says it fits with KP's larger mission of improving health. Environmental health and the impact that has on the health of a community are so tightly correlated. Kaiser's environmental investments include new buildings that have won awards for energy efficiency. KP is investing in waste reduction and water conservation. Lyon says research shows environmental factors like air pollution have twice the impact on people's health than access to high-quality medicine. And he says it saves money. So having a healthy environment which supports healthy living really improves our mission and our bottom line. You notice they're sort of a ray towards the south to get the southern exposure. Clayton Mitchell points to a covered parking lot topped with solar panels. Mitchell heads up Kaiser's investments in renewables in Colorado and several other states. In a state with 300 sunny days a year, these solar panels provide more than half the electric energy needed to power the adjacent medical office building. 55%. Over 25 years, we anticipate getting $160,000 in energy savings. Kaiser has installed solar systems at seven Colorado facilities through what's called a power purchase agreement. It's a deal between KP, solar developer Namaste, and XL Energy. Mitchell says the partnership lets Kaiser lock in low energy rates for the next 20 years. Which makes it very affordable, drops our operating costs, and those savings can be passed on to our members. Mitchell has experience saving money using renewable energy. As a civil engineer and officer in the U.S. Navy, he helped craft energy policy and strategy across the entire service. Energy is a huge, huge deal for the United States Navy. Mitchell says his Navy experience showed him how volatile fossil fuel costs could be and taught him how investing in renewable energy could save vast sums of money. Now he sees Kaiser taking a similar leadership role. I believe that we have a significant voice. KP is one of a growing number of brands like Walmart, Target, Google, and Apple investing in renewable energy. Rebecca Cantwell leads Colorado's Solar Energy Trade Association. She says they're doing it because of the health benefits as well as pure economic self-interest. I don't think any large corporation makes decisions that don't pencil out for them economically. Cantwell says as solar has caught on globally, the price of panels has plummeted by more than 50 percent in a decade. What's really happened with the price of solar is dramatic. Government policy played a big role as well. Solar and wind took off in Colorado after its voters became the first to pass a renewable energy standard in 2004. The state is required to get 30 percent of its electricity from renewables by 2020. Now, Excel has 30,000 rooftop solar customers, including nearly 1,700 businesses. Aaron Overturf with the group Western Resource Advocates says demand from business like Kaiser is growing. I would describe it as flourishing and Untapped. Still, she says, solar represents just 1.5% of XL's electricity mix in Colorado. But some wonder if demand for renewables will drop if the new Trump administration cracks back on tax credits, credits that jump-started the industry. Congresswoman Diana DeGette, a Denver Democrat, fears the answer is yes. I think we're going to see a big assault on this. Leaders at Kaiser Permanente say they intend to keep investing in green initiatives because they make sense for the company's bottom line. But many eyes will turn to Washington, D.C. to see how a new administration will shape energy policy and how that will influence business decisions on whether to go green. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Okay, John raised a big question there. What will a Trump administration mean for renewables, particularly solar? CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood set out for some answers. 
The Boulder office of Namaste Solar feels more like a tech startup you'd find in Portland, Oregon, than a solar company. From the energetic flannel-clad workers in their 20s and 30s, to the office Boston Terrier Rex who darts around the open floor plan. Rex, what are you doing? Flashback one month ago, though, Namaste co-founder Blake Jones says the vibe here was different. Days after the election, it felt pretty bleak. Everyone was very concerned. The initial perspectives were, our movement is in trouble. That's because President-elect Donald Trump railed against renewable sources like wind on the campaign trail. His transition team is largely focused on bolstering fossil fuels like oil, gas, and coal. So you'd be surprised to hear what Jones says next. Over time, I think, as the dust settled, as we thought about things, as we uh, read different perspectives for solar and renewables, I'm quite optimistic. The takeaway here is that policy set by states, not the federal government, matters a lot. In 2004, Colorado became the first in the nation to pass voter-approved renewable energy standards. Today, that goal requires investor-owned utilities use 30 percent renewable energy by 2020. The solar industry, as we know it here in Colorado, and and Namaste Solar as an individual company, would not exist if it weren't for Colorado's renewable energy standard. Colorado is one of 29 states to have a renewable portfolio standard. The idea is that utilities get a certain amount of energy from wind or solar. Across the country, 60 percent of growth in renewable energy generation since 2000 has been connected with the policies. That's according to the California-based Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Galen Barbos is a research scientist there. In the northeast or the western U.S., you look at the pattern of growth in renewable energy, and it, it pretty much mirrors the requirements that these policies put in place. Barbos says the remaining growth is driven by factors like federal tax credits for wind and solar. This is something a Trump administration and Republican-controlled House and Senate could reverse. Another driver is unstoppable. Wind and solar are getting cheaper and more competitive with fossil fuels. So you see around the country more and more utilities that are purchasing renewable energy just purely on economic grounds or as a, as a hedge against volatile natural gas prices. Last year in the U.S., renewables accounted for 64 percent of all electric generating capacity added. Natural gas makes up most of the rest. Wind has been the dominant renewable, but solar is gaining steam. Utilities are building more large-scale solar farms. The lower price of solar is also attracting a lot more individual customers. There are a whole lot of rooftops across the United States. That's Will Craven. He's with Solar City, based in California, which operates in 19 states, including Colorado. He says his company's recent merger with Tesla will give more choices to consumers. Solar panels could eventually get paired with batteries. And it's here that state, not federal policy, really matters. Take Nevada. In 2015, a shift by the Public Utilities Commission there reduced incentives consumers got when selling power back to utility companies. The result was that overnight, uh, a growing industry was shut down and Solar City alone was forced to let go of 500 employees. In Colorado, a recent rate case settled by the Public Utilities Commission favored solar growth. Blake Jones with Namaste Solar says the day is coming when solar and renewables won't even need rebates or tax credits. Take state-level incentives, once considered critical for Colorado companies. And now here in Colorado, the state-level subsidies for solar are almost down to zero. Jones says solar's cost continues to drop. 
That means it could soon cost at or below what customers pay for conventional electricity sources. At the end of the day, Trump is a businessman and he understands business. When you look at, at solar and wind, in essence, I think this is the biggest economic opportunity of the 21st century. Right now, Colorado ranks ninth among states for solar generation. What happens to this growing industry hinges on a constellation of state and federal policies and what the Trump administration plans to do over the next four years. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Special thanks to audio engineer John Zuko. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.